Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to consider the perspective of an educator who has experience with hybrid and at-home school models. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Dr. Scott Mock, principal of Edmonds Heights K-12. I first met Scott, who happens to be the former president of the Washington Association for Learning Alternatives, when we sat down in person for an interview in late January. I had hoped to make a small series where I explored various alternative school models, but like many things in 2020, those plans were put on hold. Nevertheless, what he shared about the Edmonds Heights model intrigued me. Students are technically homeschooled, but are closely supervised by accredited teachers in their learning plans. And, full disclosure, my love of their learning philosophy, along with the school's proximity to my house, led to me becoming a volunteer there. Due to this homeschool cooperative partnership model, Scott and his colleagues are incredibly attuned to working with families in a collaborative manner, giving students work that needs to be completed independently, and thinking about education in a non-traditional way. Scott himself is also incredibly focused on whole family engagement in learning, surveying students and parents about their experiences throughout the pandemic, and has even started hosting free virtual workshops entitled Joyful Learning at Home, a Primer for Parents which is for parents of both homeschooled and traditionally schooled students, as well as curious podcasters. In this interview, we talk about some of the positives that have come from COVID-19 upsetting the traditional school model. I feel it's important that I acknowledge that many of the families that are seeing perceived positives are in privileged positions of health, financial security, and or time to spend on educational activities. And I don't want to ignore how difficult this disruption has been for them, as well as for teachers. I think everyone is scrambling right now to find a way forward. And hopefully this interview, recorded in early September, helps with that scramble. Or at very least shows educators that they are not alone in trying to puzzle through what the future has in store. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're the principal of Edmund Heights K-12, which is a homeschool partnership. And I was wondering if you could just briefly explain what that actually means. Yeah. So um, we're an unusual program. We are about 24 years old and we're part of a, of a, a wave of alternative education in, in Washington state that basically cooperatives set up for homeschooling families where public dollars are deployed in cooperation amongst homeschoolers and they sort of have more control over the program historically. And over time, they kind of evolved to have more restrictions and more rules placed on them. But the essential idea of our program is that all students have an individualized learning plan, that they all have a completely different education. And that education, that learning plan is codified in, in a written student learning plan that basically is used to drive uh, resource distribution, how funds are allocated, how we use teachers, support staff, everything. So everything is sort of deployed on behalf of 
of actualizing or operationalizing the learning plan. You guys have kind of done a hybrid model from the start where students can come in for up to 50% of their class load, but the rest needs to be done at home. Um, So having done for many years what some people are just starting to do in their career, what are some things you think teachers should know about a hybrid model where they're not with the kids as much as they normally are? A couple things that I've learned. One is that when you're in a situation where you're engaging students, you really need to be on point. So when you have less contact time with a student, there's not that kind of that latitude to sort of not be your best teacher every day. And that's kind of harsh and hard sometimes to swallow. But the reality is when you, when you only get a certain amount of time with kids, it really needs to be engaging. You need to be building community. Um, it really needs to be something that kids want to do. So that's one thing we've learned. Another thing we've learned is that you really have to sort of Marie Kondo the curriculum. You sort of have to pick what's essential and what gives you and the kids the most joy. That what is it that's going to make kids come back, but also give them enough skill, enough new learning, enough critical thinking that they can move forward, that they're not just sort of learning a little bit or, or not at quote unquote grade level, but that you're actually advancing the ball. The third thing I think we learned is that parents are perfectly capable of teaching and coaching their kids at home. And that if you empower them and teach them about how you'd like them to do it and listen about what their thoughts are about their own kids, that you can develop a pretty strong partnership that's going to work great for kids. I think an example I would use is we started uh, special education here at this program seven years ago when it didn't exist before students prior to that went to another school and, and what we noticed when we, when we decided to do special education is, is we were able to Edmund site size it. So we were able to sacrifice time for class size. So our students, even in special education, come for less time in the week. But that time that they're there with the teacher in really small groups is on point. The other thing that's really groovy about it is that teachers can show parents how to do what they're doing in the classroom so it can be done at home. So when you have teachers and parents using the same language to talk to their students, that's pretty powerful. So it's not like you can come home from school as a student and your parent asks, well, what did you learn today? And you say, well, uh, stuff and junk or I don't know or nothing. Like parents actually know what happened, you know, or they're actually engaging their students in ways that invite a conversation that's different. Something that always sticks with me is when you talk about time doesn't equal learning, which I think is a mindset that the first time I heard you say it, I was like, what? <laughs> so maybe you could give your time doesn't equal learning spiel for the listeners. So time and learning are not the same thing. We have built entire systems around time and equate it with learning. So we have this belief at its core that the basic is that a student sits 30 hours a week in a seat, and at the end of that week, that student is 30 hours more enriched, has learned 30 hours worth of material. While we've certainly thought through a little bit more about how to understand learning, how to evaluate that learning, maybe even how to differentiate instruction within classrooms so that kids are getting something that's a little more catered to them, 
The reality is that kids learn at different rates. They have different desires of what they want to learn. There's different things they should learn. And when you start to empower students and teachers and parents to learn differently without time being the factor, it kind of blows doors open. It blows a lot of things open. And and when we see our students here at Edmonds Heights, because they are taking responsibility for what their learning is going to be through, you know, co-developing their plans, um, implementing their plans, self-evaluation, self-reflection, all of the things that really make good learning, because they're doing those things, they're able to learn things really efficiently and they're able to go down rabbit holes. So we have students that are really passionate about musical theater. They spend most of their uh, educational life on musical theater, either in production or singing lessons or studying or whatever it is that they do to be better at that. They might spend a lot less time on math and reading or math and history or whatever, but they're getting it done. So when we, when we sort of, what we notice is when we start to let students, kids, parents be in charge of how time is used, you see that they're really efficient at doing things that we assume would take longer. And because they're getting to do something they're passionate about, the things that they sort of quote unquote need to do, they get done. Yeah. And that brings me to my next thing, which is I know that you've been asking parents about the positives of home learning. Like what are things that kids have learned because they were home that they wouldn't have had the opportunity to do otherwise. And before I get your example, I just wanted to share mine, which is I just interviewed um, Amber Coleman Mortley, who was telling me about her daughter who had during the pandemic, she really enjoyed this gaming site called Roblox. And so Roblox decided to um, darken the skin of their avatars in order to to support Black Lives Matter. And then this lovely 12-year-old girl, Garvey Mortley, ended up making a video talking about the history of blackface and how she perceived this as blackface. And she wouldn't have had the time to figure out the video software, the time to put it together, and then the time to talk to the media after it went viral if she had been constrained by a traditional schedule. No, those, that's a great example. And, and another example that comes to mind is Billie Eilish. Like, I don't think Billie Eilish set, a, set foot in a classroom her entire life. And I, and I could be wrong on that. Billie Eilish fans, I apologize in advance for screwing that up. But my understanding is she was homeschooled, both she and her brother. And when you talk about the ability to go down these rabbit holes, I mean, look at the, look at the level of skill and talent and passion that she has with music. And clearly able to parlay that into uh, becoming filthy rich, but also really, uh, really influencing people in positive ways. I mean, it certainly has a fan base that, that and, 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 and sort of gives off a positive vibe. So, you know, I, <laughs> you sort of have to trust humans that uh, we know what we need. And if, if we're, if we're sort of allowed to do that and told, that repeatedly, either directly or indirectly, will get things done. And so your, your example is a really great one. Is like, I have all this time. I'm really excited about this idea. We, we are starting to see more and more of these examples. And, and like you said at the beginning of this question, when you ask parents or you ask students, what did, what did your kid learn during closure that school didn't teach them? 
they have no hesitation whatsoever. We're talking about some big examples. Do you have any small examples? Uh, riding a bike came up about 20% of the time, which I think is important. <laughs> uh, a lot of kids learned how to cook. That Those were kind of the big ones. Gardening was a big one because uh, in the great Northwest, we can start gardening pretty early in the season. But there was one that came up and I, and I, and I sort of put this under the umbrella of a contemplative practice. Kids learn to still themselves. And certainly this wouldn't have been all kids, but there were a lot of parents who observed their children just becoming more capable of being still and quiet and, and sitting in boredom and, and not feeling bored. This type of authentic student generated learning is obviously a very positive thing. So how do you think we can continue to nurture this when we go back to quote unquote normal? That's a really good question. So I would say a couple of things. I, I think one is we need to figure out ways to cultivate partnership with parents differently than we have across the board. And that's something that I know school districts struggle with mightily. There's uh different demographic groups that um, we're not very invitational to. And so we have to figure out how to start doing that better. I think the second thing is I think we need to be more culturally responsive. So if you look at what culturally responsive curriculum is and you look at what students learned that we didn't teach them during closure, it's essentially things that were important to them and their families. Well, that's, what, that's the core of what culturally responsive curriculum is, right? It's like acknowledging that these people have skills and passions. Um, like everybody, they are smart. They, 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 they're fine. Um, and we all have that reckoning. The reality is that, that, we, that public schools are white space. And so it's not super invitational to multiple cultures and races. So that's another thing that, that we learned during closure. The other thing, and I don't know how we get traction when we talk about school, because I know Chris Reichdahl, who is the superintendent of public instruction of Washington State, invited all educators across the state to get innovative, that now is the time that, that to, to figure out and to take risks and to try new things. I'm not sure how, how our past resistance to that is going to all of a sudden go away because we have this global health crisis I don't see us being able to really rethink what we're doing when we're really in, in the lower levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs relatively frequently. Like we're not in a self-actualized place either as a system or as individuals in the way that we need to be in order to take the kinds of risks. I think that said, I think the partnership is critical. And I think culturally responsive practices are critical. And both of those things, I think we saw um, work for us um, in our observations during closure. Yeah, when I was volunteering at the school, I met one of the moms, um, I believe it was Courtney Wooten, and she is homeschooling her kids. And she talked about having them embrace the, the black history of America and that really focusing on that. And that wasn't something that they were getting in their schools. And that was amazing. And then I started seeing all of these op-eds and blogs of this happening and these little microcosms all around the world where 
people were at home with their kids and really pushing the perspective of that cultural background and even maybe even examining and I'm focusing on history, but this is in all the curriculum, but examining the narrative for the first time that their kids were getting and just really wanting to deconstruct it. One of my uh, favorite cartoons of all time was on my refrigerator when I was in graduate school. And my friend Tom had put it up there. He may still be there as far as I know, 30 years later. But the cartoon was a picture of this kid standing at his teacher's desk and he was uh, his the bottom half of his body had disappeared and the teacher was saying to him you know i know your 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 paper on disappearing into another dimension is really interesting jimmy but it wasn't the assignment <laughs> right and so we we regularly do this thing where we tell kids their observations and ideas aren't the assignment and we do we diminish other cultures similarly that we deny reality and there's this whole pushback system in place that is making it even harder to point at things that really happen and i think when you're homeschooling your kids and and as you saw when we were in the friday session one of my tips is you've got to let your kid drive what the course of study is You've got to listen to your kid. What are they excited about? What are their, what are they, what's going to help them learn? The system is not, is, is built to do that in batches. And it's really hard for the system to be, to do otherwise because of how it's built. So, I mean, I think our experience at, at Edmonds Heights is like, if you build it around each individual kid, yeah, it takes resources, but it can be done. But then, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about with that Maslow, like, teachers who are really, really, really stressed, like, can they even build what needs to be built? And I'm sure there, there are some that can and some that, that can't, but like on average, is there enough emotional capacity for that kind of instruction to happen? Well, I think you're right. And I think you might be onto something and it's related to the fire hose we drink out of day in and day out that has only gotten turned up in reopening with remotely, you know, we're back into survival mode and, and we can't do any more than that. I don't know how to encourage people to say, bugger it. I'm just going to do this whole new thing. I'm just going to, I'm going to punt and I'm going to try this new thing. Now I have a teacher who decided I was delighted she decided that she was going to convert all of her writing classes to poetry. She's calling it poetry in a pandemic. And her justification for it was really sound pedagogically, but it was also based on this idea is like, this is what we have right now. And I want to ensure that my students experience joy and success. And I'm like, there you go. <laughs> like, it's not about doing the writing curriculum she's done year in and year out, which is the way she does it is excellent. It's not to diminish that in the least. It's that, she saw this whole other way to do something that she's passionate about, her kids are passionate about, and this is just what we're going to do. Yeah, so you mentioned the online seminars that you've been given, and it's you're giving not advice because when I was part of it, you made us work. You made put us in breakout groups and shared back in. Something that really struck me was how much parents were really leaning into this opportunity. And we'll talk afterwards about those that don't have that capacity to do so. But 
from a teacher's perspective, what do you think that they should know about parents? I think one that, that parents are doing their best. I think that that's one thing. And I, and I, and I don't have any reason to believe that that isn't understood in a widespread way, but I think that's definitely one thing. I think another thing is that most parents know their kids better than you do. Most, not all. Um, and that's not a dig on parents. It's just, it's sometimes contextually, there's information that kids aren't given their parents that they're given their teachers <laughs> and their context of their lives can really shift who knows a, a, a child really well and who can get the best out of a child. And again, it's not, it's not, not even a majority. I think that teachers also need to trust that parents can coach and teach their own children and that they need support in doing that, that they, they do need to be given direction. They need to be given some skills. They need to be um, allowed to process it. It's not unlike what we did the other Friday in the joyful learning group, just sort of giving, tell, asking people the right questions and letting them process it and go, oh, okay, I know what you need me to do now, or I know what I need to do now. And it's not a lot. It's not a heavy lift, right? You saw that. You saw in one hour people coming out the other side of that going, okay, I know what I need to do. The opposite. And I think you hit on a big thing. Um, and my former guest, Mandy Yom, said this. And I was like, yes, I need to remind myself of this more. Is that there's no parent that wakes up in the morning saying, I'm not going to do the best for my child. But obviously there's going to be circumstances that, are out of their control. So they're just, like you said, doing the best that they can. So for parents who are not able to kind of embrace this new opportunity, if we want to call it an opportunity, what are ways that teachers can either make life easier or at least minimize a certain amount of distress uh, for parents? I would say for teachers, the really big thing is to be super flexible about what you expect a parent and a kid to do at home. I was talking to a parent in our seminar that has two kids that are about two years apart. One of them is fine on Zoom. The other one is like, if there's more than two other kids on Zoom, she goes away. She just can't handle it. My advice to that parent is you got to negotiate a settlement with this teacher you know, you've got to negotiate how differentiation can happen because you're going to support the kid at home. They just need to know that you're not, it's nothing personal. You're not, you're, you're, you're not destroying the kid, but th that this is the bandwidth this kid has for this particular venue. When we come back, it'll change. Um, so that's, that's something I would say to teachers. I'm trying to coach parents to engage their teachers in a way that helps them understand that it's going to be okay if, if the kid doesn't show up to a Zoom meeting periodically. Yeah, or even, I mean, I see these things online where already you start seeing kids getting in trouble for eating on Zoom or, you know, wearing a baseball cap on Zoom. And it's just, we've just taken the, the punitive controlling system. And because the kids aren't in the physical space. Those that love control are freaking out and they're just putting even more control on it. And it's, I mean, the equity issues, not to mention like a moral perspective, like, uh, yeah, that's about us. 
that's that's not about kids or what's good for kids. That's about us. And 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 if those things are true, um, that's really about teachers fearing losing control. And I would wager that they probably had that problem when they were face to face, or at least their reaction to COVID is so strong they're just defaulting to control everything. I don't see anything that can be gained by doing that. Our primary job as educators is to create community. My why for education is human happiness and fulfillment. That isn't going to happen if we're not creating that sense of community. And I can certainly acknowledge the, the ways and the days where I don't contribute in a positive way to that. Like I'm a human being. I can be as a, a big a you know what as anybody, I guess. But I'm, I'm very aware that there's times I need to make repairs for that so that we can continue to advance the ball in terms of human happiness and fulfillment, right? So if those teachers are, are knocking on kids for wearing a hat to school to their Zoom class or sitting on their bed or wearing pajamas or eating food during – I mean, that's got to stop. Now, the flip side is I think it's perfectly legitimate for a teacher to say – when you come to class, brush your teeth and put on school clothes. Like that's about pride and engagement. It's like, I am, I am coming to school. Like it's not the weekend. It's not, you know, that's, that's an issue of, of getting kids into the rhythm of school. If they're busting kids, that's a whole different thing. But I think too, like even in that example, like it's one thing to ask that of students, but like before you get mad at the kid, maybe find out if they're water is even turned on in their home because maybe they can't take a shower or they can't put new clothes on because their water's turned off. Yeah, exactly. And a good teacher is not going to make a fuss about it in front of everybody. A good teacher might have a follow-up call during office hours and say, Hey, notice you weren't able to get into the, you know, get, get cleaned up before class today. And, and, you know, I, I know, you know, it's really nice when you do that. You can engage in class, you know, what's going on? Is there anything I can help with? And, and then the conversation can happen. And it's not about being punitive. It's about, it's about you know, sort of like the ancillary teaching or oh, the null curriculum. It's like, what are the things that we can teach them that aren't really in the curriculum? I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things. I think it's a really good question. And I'm not sure I have the, the right answer to it. Those are just my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think everyone's just groping in the dark at this point. Uh. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Jeez. Pretty much. We we are making these hour to hour decisions. It's nuts. I've never seen anything like this. And it's like, and every decision is consequential and every decision gets somebody's ire up. And it's a really hard place to be in when you're just trying to get, teach kids. You know, it's just it's all I want to do is teach kids. I think to anyone that's telling you that they figured this all out and they have the solution probably also has like a bridge to sell you and a Nigerian prince that they'd like you to support. Like, <laughs> Yeah, seriously. I know. If people wanted to get in contact with you or follow you or know more about your thinking about education, how can they do that? You can find me on LinkedIn is probably the easiest one. You can also reach out to me at scottmock at widby.com, W-H-I-D-B-E-Y.com. Um, and my and last name, M-A-U-K. And I'm happy to help in any way I can. And if you need a shoulder to cry on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for lending your yeah. perspective. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's always fun to talk with you. I appreciate that you keep doing this. It's important. Oh, 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 o
was Agent Scott Mock with Why Time Isn't Learning, Following Students Down Rabbit Holes, and Giving Up Control Because No One Knows What's Happening Next. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will be available along with links to resources we mentioned and information about previous special agents at LessonImpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider forwarding it to your colleagues or reading and reviewing it on your podcast listening app. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.